welcoming in now Craig Fugate, former FEMA director, former state emergency management director for the state of Florida. And Craig, I have uh, questions for you, but I want to tell you that I was recently in a meeting and somebody was trying to explain something to me like, oh, well, there's these levels and there's this triage. And so you should really try to triage things and prioritize them and, you know, kind of do it like the Waffle House Index. Do you know about the Waffle House Index? And I said, do I know about the Waffle House Index? I talked to the man who coined it. Does that yeah, just follow you everywhere? Yeah, it's going to be on my tombstone. The Waffle House Index is red. <laughs> well, for anybody who doesn't know, you had this great quote when you were on the Carolina Weather Group show. And I don't know if you remember saying it or not, but it was something like, oh, one day we were putting together the Waffle House Index, as it's so-called been phrased, uh, where you guys would show on a map to officials which Waffle Houses were fully open, partially open and closed to help kind of convey for folks who are unfamiliar with the severity of an incident on the ground, whether it be weather or something else. And I just remember you said, oh, yeah, there was this one day we were running late and I had to say, Mr. President, don't worry, they're still making bacon. That was my favorite quote of any guest on the Carolina <laughs> Weather Group. Well, I'm glad you're here tonight as we're doing our telethon, because um, I had originally reached out to you a couple of weeks ago when we uh, were looking at uh, resilience zones that were being rolled out by the current FEMA administration, which uh, you are since retired from. But I wanted to pick your brain because we keep seeing record-breaking billion-dollar disaster events year after year. And so I know you are a big champion of resilience. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about what resilience is and, and how as communities we can try to prepare ourselves for this upward trend of disaster events? Yeah, I think you know, when you talk about being resilient, um, People go, what, what does it mean? And it's like, it doesn't mean we don't have storms and it doesn't mean we don't have damages. But if you think about it, a lot of this goes back to where and how we build. And we know that the way we build and where we have built stuff has a great determination about how severe the disasters are. So the idea of building resilience is let's start with our building codes and make sure we're using appropriate building codes for the risk, making sure we're building in areas that are survivable and that as we're looking at both the buildings but also our infrastructure, we're taking into account that the past is not preparing us for the future. Uh, these extreme weather events are record setting. Uh, in many cases, I think we are, we're too dependent upon looking at the last 100 years of weather data. We, do, we use terms like a 100-year flood event to describe risk. And people say, well, I don't live in a 100-year flood risk, therefore I don't have a flood problem. I'm like, yeah, there was a headline in the Washington Post last year, five 1,000-year flood events in five weeks. So, you know, part of this idea of resilience is, is making sure that we're using the appropriate building codes, land use planning. Uh, but importantly, we're not building to just the past. We're incorporating in the severity of these storms, uh, most notably the extreme rainfall events, which are occurring more and more frequent and in many places that have never experienced this level of flooding. My co-host, Scotty Powell, on the line. We'll get questions from him in a moment, but he is along the Carolina coast there at Myrtle Beach. I think about resilience. I think about the Outer Banks, places where we've seen homes just tumbling into the ocean as the oceans are rising. But let me ask you this, Craig. While those pictures are obviously breathtaking and have been burned into my brain, is this just a coastal community problem or is this a broader problem for everyone? It's everywhere in the U.S. Uh, it's actually global. Uh, if you look across the globe, Extreme rainfall events, extreme flooding, you're seeing that taking place almost daily. 
Uh, look what's happening uh, right now. I believe it's in the Dominican Republic where they've gotten almost a foot of rain uh, with these tropical systems. So again, the infrastructure we built was built for the past. What we're seeing is these extreme rainfall events are exceeding our design parameters. Not only is it the homes that are being damaged, but just look at roads, bridges, uh, culverts, uh, drainage systems that are being overwhelmed and destroyed in these events. And this goes back to uh, we need to really understand what our risk is going forward and make selective decisions about how we're going to make improvements because we can't do everything. So we're going to have to be selective and look at that. And I think that's one of the things you know the administration did with the resilience zones is, is to really focus in on lower income communities, which historically have not gotten the funding to build resilience and are actually more vulnerable to these events. And Craig, to, to piggyback off of that, um, like James said, I live here along the Grand Strand, uh, Myrtle Beach, Horry County, um, Brunswick County, North Carolina, kind of uh, this area along the northeast south, northeast South Carolina, southeast North Carolina coast uh, for the third year in a row is the highest um, growing metropolitan area. Uh, we're seeing a lot of issues here in the Grand Strand. A, um, the infrastructure, there's so many people moving in and there's only one way out of the Grand Strand via 501, because if you go Highway 17 north or south, you're cut off by Wilmington or Charleston with potential storm surge and flooding. So the only way in is on 501, which also floods in the city of Conway from a main stem river flooding after a hurricane hits. Uh, we also are building all of these apartment complexes and townhome complexes on swamp land. And we continue to see this and we continue to see storm after storm these homes just continue to get flooded out. And eventually, you know, how, how, do, how, how can we prevent people from building into these areas that are known to flood? I mean, I know there's been a lot of talks, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's getting anywhere. Well, it's a constant struggle between the desire to develop and build uh, and areas that people want to live in and pushing back and saying, okay, if we're going to build there, we're going to have to build a higher standards. We're going to have to elevate. Uh, we're going to have to go to higher wind coast. That increases the cost. Uh, what I'm seeing driving this, however, uh, is lack of available insurance. Uh, increasingly across the Gulf Coast and now across the Southeast, we're seeing the price of insurance go higher and higher for wind coverage. And as you also are dealing with higher interest rates right now, uh, to a certain degree, that puts a little bit of a damper. But the reality is anywhere that's desirable along the coast, both before disaster and then after a storm hits and there's a, you know, wiped out, we see this rapid gentrification where we keep building in these high risk areas. As long as what we're building, we understand that risk for secondary homes, vacation homes, short-term rentals, that may not be a bad investment. It's when it's the permanent workforce that, you know, the people that live there full time that lose their homes uh, and then get displaced, that it becomes, I think, more of a, uh, a challenge to look at, well, how do people that live here afford to work and live in these areas, or are they forced out? And to a certain degree, Nobody wants to make that desirable, but the reality is we're really using market forces to push people out of high-risk areas uh, and only 
really making affordable for the wealthy and those that are treating this as not a primary residence. Uh, and, and you know, where you at, Scott? You've seen that transition. I mean, you used to go down to Myrtle Beach, and most of the people that lived there off season that was their permanent home. Now, the majority of the housing there are short-term rentals. Uh, you know, vacation homes uh, provides pretty good tax base to the community. But these are people that have options to leave during bad weather, have options to leave during hurricanes, uh, and it's the permanent population that's getting priced out of these communities and pushed further inland. That may be better for their risk factor, but it's certainly impacting the uh, workforce availability in a lot of these coastal areas. I have one more follow-up with that. Um, I know James has a question. Uh, one thing that um, I, I know you're familiar with and a lot of weather savvy folks are familiar with um, are these major hurricanes. Hurricane Camille back in the 60s, you had Hurricane Hugo uh, in the late 80s. It's about every 30 to 35 years that the Grand Strand into Southeast North Carolina um, timetable see these major hurricanes that could affect the area. And with so many people moving in and only one way out, as an emergency manager, as you was for the state of Florida and then working with FEMA and in Washington, what is a concern for you knowing that uh, a place may be overdue for a hurricane and there's very minimum ways to get out? Uh, my real concern is going to be rapid intensification. Uh, if you look at these storms and you look at the length of time it takes to evacuate and the reluctance many times of local officials to pull the trigger early, if they're only dealing with a tropical hurricane or tropical storm or maybe a category one hurricane, uh, they're using their past reference to that going, well, we've dealt with those before, we're good, but it's moving over to, over to Gulf Stream. And all of a sudden, as we've seen more and more frequently, is these rapid intensifiers that at the point you needed to make a decision to give people time to get out, it didn't seem to be a very significant storm. And now all of a sudden you have a Category 5 on your doorsteps. We saw this with Hurricane Michael uh, and the Florida Panhandle in 2018. We saw this with Hurricane Ian, where we had more people drown in coastal communities in Florida than we had since any hurricane before 1930, before the 35 hurricane, uh, which to me is kind of staggering. Uh, so it's not only the amount of time it takes to evacuate, it's that these hurricanes aren't going to give you days to get ready. Um, you know, you guys are going to be dealing a lot of times with a storm coming out of the south, parallel the coast. That becomes a very challenging forecast. A few degrees left or right could mean landfall or near miss. But if you think about it, the one storm that scares me is the storms that are uh, basically a cat one, maybe a strong tropical storm, uh, two to three days out when people need to be making decisions, they're making their decisions based upon that. And then we get a rapid intensification like we just saw down in Mexico, where in 24 hours, you're going from a, a, a category one hurricane to a cat five hurricane and people don't have time to evacuate. I want to give a shout out to Richard Cook, who just donated $10 to help with the American Red Cross. Appreciate that support. Uh, Craig, let me follow up on that thread of rapid intensification. You are no longer in those FEMA briefing rooms or in the state briefing rooms, but I'm curious, based on your knowledge and your professionalism, when you're looking at these satellite images, is there anything that comes to mind that you would say, if I was still there, this is the thing that I would do differently than the way you may have done it when you were there? How does rapid intensification change that workflow for disaster relief? 
Well, I think it's something we have to expect. I mean, for a long time, our rule of thumb was for every storm we're dealing with, we always bumped it up a category and strength when we were doing our evacuation planning. Um, that may no longer be adequate. Uh, the other thing we have to really pay attention to is when I was doing this, there was pretty much one official source of information, and you got it through very limited uh, formats. The National Hurricane Center, you got it across major broadcast networks. Now with social media, there are so many different pieces of information and people able to go out there and find so many different varieties of forecast products, uh, some of which are based upon the, you know, the, the National uh, Hurricane Center products. Some are not based on anything that we would recognize. Yet that's the information people have. And when we used to you know, try to make sure we spoke with a consistent message across the consistent uh, 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 platforms, that's changing. And now you've got people that are social influencers that are also wading into these debates. Uh, so I think, you know, from my standpoint is uh, we have to factor in uh, rapid intensification, uh, especially if the Hurricane Center is issuing forecasts that suggest that's possible. Uh, the other thing is we got to understand that our ability to speak and be heard by the public as a, as a single message has been diluted. And we're going to have to spend a lot more time understanding uh, how people get their information, how they weigh that to make decisions. Uh, we're having to move away from the what I used to call the parent speaking to the child, where government authorities would just tell people to evacuate uh, and wouldn't spend a lot of time with the why you need to evacuate. And I think that's the other thing I'm seeing change. We are moving away from just dealing with the strength of the storm category to really focusing on the forecasted impacts, which are not going to be uniform across an area. And we're going to have to do a better job of explaining people why they need to move to higher ground, why they need to evacuate uh, when there's uncertainty. And in many cases, it's a blue sky day when you're asking them to do that. I want to preface my next question for you by letting our audience know you have worked for bosses of both political parties, Republicans and Democrats. So this question is not loaded with politics behind it. But given your experience, we're in a situation right now where we keep coming up right on the 11th hour of a potential government shutdown. What would happen to disaster relief from the federal government, from agencies like FEMA, if a government shutdown were to happen? Yeah, it depends on where they're at in their budget. Um, you know, we went through a shutdown and um, actually had uh, several disasters we were responding to. The important thing to remember is FEMA has a uh, funding source to respond and recover from disasters that's separate from the annual appropriation. So what we call the disaster relief fund, and this is really archaic inside baseball budgeting. But even if the government, what they call a lapse of funding, they did not pass an appropriations billing, the government shuts down. Money that is not tied to that appropriation is still good. So FEMA still has money to respond to disasters. What happens immediately to FEMA is they shut down all of their non-essential programs. They shut down all their training, shut down all their grant programs, but they can continue to do response utilizing that funding. That's why, if you remember earlier this year, the disaster relief fund was running low on money. And there was a lot of concern about what happens if they run out of money. Well, the response stops. So... Uh, you know, and we've been through this, we've done it. Uh, if there's any agency that is well-versed in lapse of funding or continuing resolutions, um, it's FEMA. Because uh, all throughout my time there and every year since then, they've dealt with these types of budget uncertainties. 
Greg, one thing that we have been seeing a lot of recently, and not say that this isn't a new uh, disaster, we've always dealt with wildfires, but it seems like we're getting more wildfires that are in urbanized areas. We look back at Pigeon Forge Gatlinburg in 2016. We look back into California over the last several years, Colorado, and, and now even some Western North Carolina wildfires. Um, it's one that I guess, you know, looking at the grand scheme of things, you worry about hurricanes, you worry about flooding, tornadoes. The wildfires kind of takes that step back, but we're starting to see more and more of this. As former FEMA director, what, what would be your advice to folks who live in these urbanized mountainous areas uh, to prepare for wildfires? Well, if you can see the trees, you're in, you're in what they call a WUI, a wildland urban interface, and it's tied to drought. And again, you know, my experience in Florida was in 1998. I was uh, bureau chief for response recovery. We had so many wildfires in the state of Florida during extreme drought that uh, of our 67 counties, over 50 of them were under fire management assistance grants. So uh, I've dealt with this on the East Coast, particularly in the coastal plain states. People just don't understand the fire risk because normally we're not dealing with extreme drought and we go through fire seasons, but the fires are not as erratic and don't spread as fast. And this is, I think, almost a bias for the East Coast to say, we don't have those kind of fires they have in California or on the West Coast. And that is generally true until you're in a drought. And we're seeing more frequent, what they call flash droughts now, a new term I didn't realize we were using, but this idea that you can go into a drought relatively quickly that increases the risk of wildfires. And, and to a certain degree, we experienced this in 1998. We went out of an El Nino, had massive flooding across the state. Um, you know, it was when we had one of our worst tornado outbreaks. We had 42 people killed in Central Florida from tornadoes in that, that, that winter. But by April, it just stopped raining. And now up until April, we've been flooding all over the state. And then it just stopped. And it didn't rain again until July. And in that time frame, we went from starting to see more active wildfires to uh, at one point towards the almost before the July 4th weekend, we evacuated Flagler County, the whole county for wildfires. So I think, again, there's this tendency if you're on the East Coast to say, hey, we don't have a wildfire problem like they do out West. Actually, you have a much worse problem. Because during these droughts, you have much higher fuel loads than they do in the West Coast. And you also have very limited experience uh, responding and dealing with the challenges of evacuating in these urban interface fires. One thing Craig, I have a little time for. Oh, go ahead, Scotty. I was going to say just a little reference for you folks, what Craig was just talking about. Uh, the the uh, evacuations, if you're a NASCAR fan, they canceled the uh, 4th of July Daytona race and held it in October due to the, the wildfires then. Yeah, 1998 was uh, uh, a rather significant uh, year for wildfires in Florida, uh, had a lot of disruptions, uh, but it pointed out that this this idea that you can go into a drought very rapidly uh, and that that persistent drought, uh, very focused, and in less than two or three months, we went from a state that was flooded to a state that was burning. And that's going to be, I think, something that in coastal plain states all the way up into the Appalachians, uh, that you know we've seen that where we've had these droughts, and then we get these wildfires that will start running, and we'll lose a community, uh, we'll lose homes. Uh, and if those droughts last longer, the fires will get worse. And it's something I think many communities haven't really thought about. 
Uh, you can go back and look at the experience of communities like Paradise, where they weren't able to evacuate in time uh, and loss of life. So I think, you know, for, for the East Coast, uh, there is this tendency, I think, that we're a little bit uh, overconfident of our ability to manage and respond to wildfires uh, because, quote unquote, it's not like out west. Greg, we've hit on a lot of really important topics here tonight that I hope people are taking to heart as they think about what threats they might have in their own community. And in the time we have left, I'm going to try to leave us on an uplifting, maybe interesting note here and make a hard pivot. I can't let you get off the Zoom tonight without asking you about the typewriter behind you. What is the story with the typewriter in your office? I get drugged to a lot of estate sales by my wife, and it's usually for me to haul the stuff she buys in my truck back home. Um, so we were at an estate sale and I was looking around and I'm looking for stuff like cam radio equipment or old radios, uh, things like that. And I saw these typewriters and I'm like going, well, that's cool. And, um, you know, so I, I, I said, well, that would be a good, uh, background. You know, the room raider gigs me all the time for hidden cords or other stuff, you know? So I thought, well, maybe I'll put a typewriter back there. I mean, some people have the, the fake libraries behind them. You know, I got my pictures. I thought, well, the typewriter would be a nice addition. All right. Well, uh, Craig, you guys, we appreciate your time and insight. Well, thanks. And, um, keep doing the good work and, uh, raise money for one of our most primary, uh, belief agencies, the American Red Cross. That's just a small part of what made our WeatherPods Disaster Relief Telethon such a success. Thanks to all of our special guests, our co-hosts, and to you at home who helped us raise over $7,000 for the American Red Cross and their disaster relief efforts. You can still donate. The link right now in the description wherever you're watching or listening this week. I'm James Briarton. Thanks so much for spending time with us. We'll see you again next week for more from the Carolina Weather Group. Be well.